This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Guardian Australia environment reporter Graham Redfern. Graham talks about the sixth mass coral bleaching event for the Great Barrier Reef in Queensland, which occurred earlier this year. Graham speaks of his visit to the reef and details the scientific evidence of its decline. We also discuss the recent assessment of the reef's condition by a scientific team from UNESCO. Will the Great Barrier Reef finally be placed on the in danger list? I'm here with Graham Redfern, who is from The Guardian Australia. He is an environment reporter there, has been doing amazing reporting. He also has a great column called Temperature Check, uh, which comes out every Thursday. And Graham, in the past, has joined me on the show to talk about uh, the UN Climate Summits. And Graham also has discussed on this show uh, the UN UNESCO World Heritage Committee and the kind of controversy that was happening surrounding the last meeting where prior to the meeting, then Environment Minister Susan Lee was jetting around on a private jet meeting with a number of the sovereign nation members of that World Heritage Committee, trying to lobby them to prevent the Great Barrier Reef from being listed on the in danger list. As we know, it is a World Heritage Site. Um, it's a really a wonder of the world and a major source of biodiversity value. It's also clearly a, a tourist attraction for people coming to Australia. It's something that I know is really tied to Australia's identity. And it's great that I get to check in with Graham now to discuss the sixth mass coral bleaching event that's happened with this Great Barrier Reef in Queensland. And Graham has headed out to a part of the reef to snorkel and look at it for himself to interview scientists on the ground and has also been reporting on the UN mission to the Great Barrier Reef that was occurring in March. A couple of scientists from the UN came to Australia to actually check out the reef, to uh, meet with different people, um, but there wasn't an, an itinerary published. So at the time, we weren't sure exactly what they were going to be looking at. I'm not sure if much has changed, but we will find all of that out from Graham in just a sec. So I welcome Graham now. Hi there. And uh, thank you so much for coming back onto the program. Oh, that's all right. Nice to nice to be here. Hi, Amy. It sounds like you've done uh, this, a lot of background reading there. I've got two pages here, which is much shorter than my normal amount, but I, I distilled it down into dot points. So we'll see how we go. But a lot of it is reliant on your reporting, Graham. So you are the, the font of all wisdom in this chat. Oh, dear. Um, so I'm really glad to, to talk about this because I, I haven't actually been to the Great Barrier Reef, although I know some have. And clearly you did get to go in March. I wonder, was that your first trip or have you actually been out there before? No, I've been a few times. I think probably the first time I went was about oh, 20 odd years ago would have been the first oh, wow. time I I. I uh, and I was scuba diving then, mm. um, so I've, I've been I've been plenty of times. So I don't know what whether that's my I don't know how many times I've been, but I've been a few times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 yeah, I mean that the idea to go and do some reporting in in March was, as you'd said, we were then aware that that we were in the middle of what uh, the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority would declare to be the the sixth mass bleaching event since the first one in 1998 
And the key rider here is that the first bleaching event to take place in a La Nina year, which is is not a small detail. And while I was there, um, and I went to John Brewer Reef, which is uh, sort of three hours and a few uh, sick buckets off Townsville, <laughs> um, the scientists there, when you talked to them and, and when I was asking them about the significance of La Nina, that, that was a, a real dominant sort of thing of all the interviews because they were saying, this isn't supposed to happen in the La Nina year and what's going to happen when we get an El Nino, which is the the warmer partner to your La Nina. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, pretty, it was, it's, it's quite significant. Well, we have been talking about La Nina in the context of floods and the yeah. huge amounts of flooding in Queensland and New South Wales. So, you know, you do associate that with coolness and rain and winter. But in fact, it seems that La Nina for the Great Barrier Reef is still warming waters. Well, what it didn't do this time was provide the cloud cover. Um, uh, there was like a almost like a delay in the monsoon and there was nowhere near as much cloud as you usually associate with a La Nina. The La Nina brings the warmer water slightly closer to Australia, but it's the cloud cover and the rain that, that generally means that corals are usually in the clear in a La Nina year, but that just didn't happen this time. Uh, and we had like a really early indication of this in December and I was talking to uh, some scientists from NOAA, the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, um, who do sort of satellite monitoring and uh, and modelling, gives you a, a, an idea of what's happening over the reef. And in December, it was really hot. And the subsequent analysis of that showed that it was the hottest December that, that had ever been recorded on the reef. And those numbers were later backed up by the bureau so that that kind of mm. that that had primed the whole system um so that the the baseline was already warm and of course then we've got we know that the marine heat waves are coming along more more frequently and the background temperature of the ocean is warmer than it used to be so that all those ingredients together uh delivered this first mass bleaching in the la nina and while that's going on, I was sort of talking to some of the scientists and some of the people actually in the air doing the aerial surveys. And, and in the end, they, they got to, I think it was 719 different individual reefs all the way up and down the sort of 2,300-kilometre stretch. And the final numbers were that, that 654 of those reefs had seen some bleaching. Uh, some of it was mild. But there was an area in the middle, in the central section, where it was sort of severe or extreme. And that means that on any reef, you've got more than 61% of the corals on that reef are bleached. And that was kind of, that, that was sort of an example of John Brewer Reef that I, that I went to. It wasn't severely bleached, but as you swim out from the boat, to the reef crest i mean the first thing that i saw was a one of these really large acropras a, a big staghorn type acropora that was essentially just bone white and it's 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 an unusual sight because you 
when you get the camera under the water, they have all sorts of kind of cool filters on that make it look really super colourful. And it is a beautiful and it is an absolutely beautiful place to go. But I kind of thought, oh, maybe that's just a maybe that's a pale brown and I'm not really seeing it all that well. But then as you snorkel over the top, you see you see a lot of a lot of corals partially or fully bleached. And you see a lot of these corals doing this thing called they they fluoresce and it's a it's a big stress signal from a coral. They're able to uh, introduce this pigment that to our eyes looks fluorescent, but it's it's them trying to generate a bit of sunscreen because as well as heat, light is really important in the bleaching process. So if you've got, if they're already stressed from heat and then you get a few really clear days, then that's that's one thing that really does set off the coral bleaching. Yeah, and I know that you had said that the John Brewer Reef, which is about 70 kilometres off Townsville, was actually one of the best reefs in terms of the best in condition near Townsville and also just as part of the Great Barrier Reef in general. So if you're saying that, you know, that wasn't doing so well, but it wasn't catastrophic, I mean, how are the other reefs doing that weren't necessarily in Great Nick before then? Yeah, I mean, I, I was with a couple of scientists that was telling me that this this is one of the this reef is 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 in great condition and is one of the best reefs along the whole reef. But what I mean, what's interesting is even on an individual reef level, John Brewer is is kind of like a almost like a horseshoe shape, and depending on which bit of the reef you you go to, which way it's facing, which way the currents are coming in. The corals are doing better even on an individual reef basis from one part to another. Mm. Um, so it can be really variable. And, and variable is one of those words that sounds like, you know, it's okay in some places and it's not okay in another. Therefore, sort of things aren't too bad. But variable from the point of view of bleaching really just means that some reefs are being hit quite hard, whereas others, just because of that, what whereabouts they are on the reef and the currents, where the currents are coming through and the upwelling and things, that, that other reefs can do okay. And that's kind of a, a well-known phenomena. But to have a healthy reef like John Brewer bleach in that way was, for the scientists that I was with anyway, was was quite shocking for them. Uh, but they, again, they keep talking. They kept talking to me, Amy, about what happens when we get an El Nino. And there's real genuine anxiety amongst some of those coral reef scientists about what might happen along the reef if you get an El Nino. Yeah, because I know you've mentioned that La Nina is meant to be that reprieve moment where things could start to come back and recover and or at least have a break and enable possible recovery. And of course, there are so many effects of heat stress, like it affects the reproduction of corals. Mm the speed of that growth. Um, it also leads to coral disease if there's enough stress going on. So if there isn't a break, as you point out, if there was um, something like an El Nino, does that mean that the corals at their current condition are just going to deteriorate rapidly? I guess, is that the anxiety that the scientists have? Well, yeah, because they're, they're worried about... El, El Nino usually gives you uh, higher temperatures for longer usually mm. and that would mean that could mean that for some corals the bleaching that they experience is so severe that you then get coral mortality those other effects that you've described those are interesting because the the, the scientists sort of call them sublethal effects so 
if you're looking at a, a map of where the bleaching is and you see areas where there's only mild bleaching or even no bleaching at all, that doesn't that doesn't mean that the corals haven't been stressed by a marine heat wave. And these things play out over a, over a long period. But also, I mean, what's really important to understand, and coral scientists have tried to get me to understand this, and I try very hard to understand it, is that we had this first mass bleaching event in 1998, and at the time it was thought to be an absolute kind of catastrophe. But the, the mix of corals over these six bleaching events has changed. So you've got you generally have a lot less of the less heat-tolerant corals and more of the corals that are more heat-tolerant. So crudely, like you now need more heat to deliver the same amount of bleaching. So if everything was the same, if we weren't seeing increasing marine heat waves and increasing ocean temperatures, then you should kind of see these things plateau out but we're not seeing that because the oceans are still getting hotter and we are seeing these marine heat waves. So the reef is sort of so complex and dynamic that it's difficult to sort of make a really broad generalization about what might happen in an El Nino. You could get an El Nino, but we could also get a couple of cyclones that just just whip the waters up and keep things cool and deliver a lot of rainfall and a lot of cloud cover. But we will get an El Nino because that we get them cyclically and it happens all the time. So there's no avoiding one of those. So the scientists now that generally that I talk to, they will all say that every single summer now, you're kind of looking at the vagaries of the weather and, and hoping that, you know, you might get a bit, of, a bit more cloud, temperatures might not be quite as hot, you might get a cyclone or two. And really, that's an extremely precarious position for the world's longest and biggest reef system to be in. But what I what I would say too is it is still and will be for a while yet an amazing place to go. Once you've been and thrown your head under the water over the Great Barrier Reef, I won't say it's life-changing, but it's a moment that you don't ever forget the first time you see it. And there are still many, many spectacular places to go, which when you when you go and you see it, you see the array of colours, the shapes of the corals, the fish, you know, smaller than your fingernail to these huge wrasse and then these, you know, white reef sharks. It's like something from a movie or a documentary, mainly because they make coral documentaries on the Great Barrier <laughs> Reef. It is absolutely spectacular. Um, and I, I suppose that's why that's why it's such an important story, um, because mm-hmm. it is it is an amazing place, not just for Australia, but for for the whole planet. Mm. Just selfishly, did you get to see an octopus? No, but there was other divers on the same trip. There was one on that reef actually and another seemingly everybody else except me saw this octopus and was bragging about it. I didn't oh. see any. Um, and next time. Yeah, maybe next time. Yeah. Well, I was quite shocked actually when I heard in one of your interviews that you said that there's, I guess, a variable, there's that word again, recovery time between some of the faster growing corals and the slower ones. And it seemed that if we didn't have that reprieve, that break, that there isn't really a kind of nice period of recovery time. You know, you've said that it's two to five years for faster growing corals and around a decade or three for the slower growing corals. So I guess 
I was a bit shocked that it could take, you know, that long for for some of those slower ones to actually come back to health in a kind of full way. Do you think that that yeah. means that some may never get back to full health if we keep getting these faster cycles of bleaching? Yeah, well, you're going to have, and I, I'm, I was quoting people like Professor Terry Hughes at James mm. Cook University and Ophel Goldberg from the University of Queensland and Tracy Ainsworth from UNSW, um, Professor Tracy Ainsworth. And yeah, the, the, the concern is always that the window of recovery is, is not long enough to enable those coral communities. I mean, not just, not individual corals, but the whole, the, the system that makes up a healthy coral reef all the different types of corals, all, all the different fish and plant species. So, yeah, the concern is that that if you don't give it enough of a break, then the reef will change sort of fundamentally and individual reefs will change as they already have done. So, yeah, that, that's, that's a big worry. And uh, ironically, the conditions over the reef had been fairly benign for two, or two and a half, three years just before this year. There'd been no cyclones. There hadn't been an El Nino. And when you look at charts of what's called coral cover that the Australian Institute of Marine Science produces, they have long-term monitoring sites that enable them to produce these maps of coral cover. And, and if you eyeball them, they it, you go, mm, this look, looks okay. But then when you talk to the scientists that do those maps, they go, well, yes, but that's crude coral cover. That's any old coral and what generally happens is that there are these type of, they look like little dinner plates, these acropora corals. They grow really, really quickly relative to some of their relatives. So they grow fast, but they're also the, those that are the most susceptible to bleaching. So the coral cover recovery, and you can't see on radio, I'm going recovery, but I'm making those funny little scare yeah. quotes while I'm saying it. The recovery was sort of driven by these weedier, faster-growing corals, um, yeah. And they're the ones that will generally sort of just fill in the gaps, but then go over when you uh, when you get the next uh, bleaching episode. And funnily enough, that's a lot of the corals that I saw at John Brewer were these table sort of acropras that were fluorescing and bleaching at the edges. Now, you know what, what happens to the, all those corals and in these individual reefs? Um, how many? of those corals die and how many of them recover we won't know for months yet because it's a huge place and the australian institute of marine science yeah their long-term monitoring is going on all the time we won't really have a good picture for another six months probably uh, or even longer than that but interestingly when the scientists were in the air doing the surveys in the north section of the reef there were some reefs that they were scoring as not bleached, which you go, that's great, no bleaching. But then in the small print, the reason there's no bleaching there is because there's no corals there anymore because they had been really badly affected by previous coral bleaching episodes in like 2016 and 2017 when we had those back-to-back -back bleachings. So, you know, you kind of have to have a really good understanding of what's going on behind these numbers and these charts before you can kind of make a really good assessment of of what's going on at least that that's in my view you do yeah well thank you for that nuance it's great that you get the chance to focus on the environment specifically uh, with your work at the guardian graham and 
I was also interested in the definition of mass bleaching or a mass bleaching event because, as you've said, the reef is split into four management areas. And, you know, if you've got two areas of widespread bleaching, it's a mass bleaching event. But in this instance, it was more than two. Yeah, yeah. There there is a bit of, there is some argument as to what constitutes a a mass bleaching um, gabrumpa the Great Barrier Marine Park Authority will will say yes, it's a mass bleaching is where you've got widespread bleaching in at least two of the two of the four management zones. Others may argue with that, but the bleaching in 2020 was at that point considered to be the most widespread, i.e., it, it was essentially almost the entire length of the reef. And there was bleaching recorded in, I think, three of the four sections. The southern section, there was some bleaching recorded, but it was quite moderate. And that's what you would expect. And funnily enough, the the southern part of the reef was the first area where the United Nations monitoring mission went to once they got out of the offices and briefings in Brisbane. Interesting. Well, let's talk about that because that was discussed when the the UN scientists arrived. There wasn't, as you reported, a public itinerary, although there was kind of a broad discussion that they might go and meet Warren Inch and perhaps they would look at some corals. They would meet Warren Inch and I'm presuming it (laughs) happened, yeah. Probably. But what is our understanding now, given that that mission, it was a 10-day mission, has concluded do we know anything more about what they did while they were here and how their report is progressing? Yeah. So, um, yeah, they were here for 10 days. They were briefed on the preliminary results of those bleaching surveys. I'm told that they they also went to Lord Howe Island, which is in the far southern end. They spent time in Townsville. I believe they also went to Cairns and and dived on a reef out at Cairns. They spent time with Warren Ench. I understand, but I don't know for for certain, but um, it it would seem likely that they will have been taken to some of the, the agriculture areas where there has been some work to... Uh, to try and improve pollution levels running into the reef because the the World Heritage Committee and the UN Science Advisors have essentially had two big concerns about the welfare of the reef. There used to be three, which was dredging. And obviously, while that remains a concern, some of that pressure in years past when there were developments near a place called Curtis Island to a big LNG project, there was going to be some dredging there. That, that didn't happen in the end. But the two big concerns are water quality and climate impacts. So it would be surprising if they hadn't been uh, taken to see some examples of uh, attempts to improve pollution runoff off farms. I mean, you know, when you clear natural vegetation and you plant sugar cane or, or you run cattle on, on the land there, you know, you're exposing a lot more soil, you're exposing riverbanks. And then when you get big downpours, a lot of that sediment and any extra nutrients and fertilizer and nitrogen ends up uh, running into the catchments and running into the um, into the reef lagoon. So I would think that they would have seen that as well. It was a 10-day trip. It's not quite the 
I think some people jumped to the conclusion that this was all a Morrison government trying to block access and stop people finding out what was going on. I mean, I was also told by UNESCO that, that they also wanted to keep the itinerary private to allow the two scientists to sort of do, do their work. Now, we were going to see the report, their mission report. We were going to see that in May. But what happened then was that this report was going to come out in May and then it was going to inform UNESCO for them to make recommendations before the next World Heritage Meeting, which was going to be near the end of June. I think I've got my dates right there, but that was going to be in Russia. And not surprisingly, that meeting has been postponed and we don't know when the next World Heritage Meeting will be. UNESCO hasn't said. So it, it could just be in another year's time. They could try and have some sort of interim meeting. They haven't said yet. But what that means for the report is that there's now an expectation that that report from the monitoring mission will come out in June, sometime next month, which is only in a few days, but it, it, yeah. it may be sometime in June. That won't sort of make recommendations for the World Heritage Committee to put the site on an endanger list, but it will sort of give a snapshot of the health of the reef from the perspective of the World Heritage Convention and and whether or not some of those qualities that put the reef on the World Heritage List in the first place in the 80s, whether that those um, uh, universal, outstanding universal values are still alive and kicking. Yeah, well, I know that when we last discussed that lobbying trip by Susan Lee as Environment Minister under the coalition government, the mass bleaching event hadn't yet eventuated or become obvious. And Mm. obviously that's happened since then. And the scientists were going when it was evident, although as you point out, it may not be evident in every spot that you go to along the reef or as severe. So it'll be interesting to see just what they did actually observe when they went. Do you think that it is more in danger now of being on that list, the in danger list, given the mass bleaching event perhaps given that the Australian government has changed. I know that a Labor government wouldn't necessarily want it either, but at least their reputation isn't necessarily tied up in an endangered status. This is really interesting, at least for sadars like me, I think it's interesting, is that the um, the Morrison government's position on whether the reef should end up on the endangered list was, was tied in around the World Heritage Convention. But basically... Susan Lee and the Morrison government had argued that impacts from climate change should not be a reason for any site, any World Heritage site in the world to be put on the endangered list. But secondly, they had also said that when the World Heritage Committee asks, they call them state parties, it's usually just one country, in, the, in Australia's uh, case, it's it's the federal government and the Queensland government, um, they will say to a state party, we think you should do A, B and C. You know, you should improve water quality. Now, the Morrison government did not want and argued strongly against the World Heritage Committee making any recommendation that would link a state party's climate record to things it should do to protect the property. Now, will whoever becomes the new environment minister, will they retain that? position? Will they lobby just as hard as the Morrison government did on that? We don't know. Mm. We certainly know that the Albanese government 
has said they don't want to see the reef end up on the endangered list. And I would think that the the extra $194.5 million that the Albanese government has pledged towards the reef on top of the Morrison government's $1 billion pledge, they will be hoping that that will help their case. And certainly an improved 2030 emissions reduction target may also help their case, even though that still falls well short of sort of a 1.5 degree target, which is what most of the government scientists, in fact, all of them have said publicly is, is going to be really essential for the future health of the reef. So there's a there's quite a few questions that we don't know the answer to yet. Mm. Well, we'll have to keep an eye on it, as I always say, because it seems like it's a movable feast, but it certainly is now that we don't know the next meeting date. Thank you so much, Graeme, for taking us through this in so much detail and giving us your first-hand experience as well as all the reporting you've done and the interviews. It's been really invaluable to get your insights. So, yeah, I appreciate your time today and we'll catch up hopefully soon to find out what's going on. Yeah, thanks a lot, Amy. I've just been speaking with Graham Redfern, Environment Reporter for The Guardian Australia. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.